Welcome to the shortwave broadcast from Cliffside Community Chapel, featuring lectures by Pastor Stephen A. Cronister. Cliffside is a small church located in Anchorage, Alaska, in the United States. Cliffside Community Chapel seeks to push back the frontiers of biblical illiteracy and expand the understanding of the Word of God. Remember now thy creator. September 19th, uh, 2021. Got to get my glasses off. No, I put them on my head, don't I? I got to remember my little system. September 19th, 2021. Lecture discussion number 149 on the book of Joel. Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job. 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. And obviously have been really heavy recently with Ecclesiastes and Job, whether you notice that or not. And certainly Joel is always there. And we're still on the immortality of animals. And I noticed that I have gone back to a white screen. The other screen is completely intact, but this is a dry erase platinum model here. And so it's reversible. And so the other side is still intact. I just have more uh, interesting, not interesting, uh, more uh, material to put on. So I'm going to do that today. Anyway, now, where are we now? Well, we, uh, the cliffside intrepid, uh, intrepid means curious as an aside. Oh, I don't have my, I don't have my by the way chart. But, uh, so the intrepid, tra- intrepid uh, travelers at this cliffside here, we arrived at the mystery of the fine structure constant last week, or the 1, 137. And, uh, physicists are often quoted as saying that the fine structure constant seems to be given by God himself. This is something that God has given us. And so, uh, really fast, you have the energy of an electron, you have Planck's constant, and you have the speed of light. And that comes into play. Uh, 137, that's equal to 137, the negative 1. A negative uh, exponent, of course, is a reciprocal, uh, an inversion, if you can think of it that way. Anyway, physicists are always saying that this is God-given, and, and physicists ask, why does nature, why does the why does the physical world insist on this number? Why 137, or it's reciprocal, reciprocal 137? Um, the, the fine structure constant quantifies the strength of an electromagnetic interaction between electrons and protons, uh, for one example. That's what's happening. This this constant tells us what's going on at the atomic level, the strength of these interactions. In other words, the fine structure constant identifies or measures, if you want to think of it that way, the electrical charge, the strength of subatomic particles, uh, specifically that which is responsible for the coupling and the binding. And it's widely used in, in atomic physics. This is where this constant comes into play. Uh, you have all kinds of constants uh, in physics, and what they and again Planck's constant. You have to figure out what all of this means eventually, but it's it's the mathematics of the physical world. Uh, so just to kind of keep repeating what this might be, the fine structure constant is the ratio of two energized particles, subatomic particles, or the energy required to defeat the electromagnetic repulsion of two electrons. If electrons have an, it's, it's the old thing used to do in, in third grade science class, you had two magnets and they had a negative pole and a positive pole and the negatives repulsed. Well, electrons both have negative charged, or negative charged particles or electrons. And so the fine structure constant is telling us how to defeat that, that repulsion of two electrons. To simplify it, maybe I, I'm not simplifying it, but I just want you to grasp at least the terminology. Yes, ma'am. Sorry to interrupt, but is that Podium mic supposed to be on phantom power? Uh, yes, it is. But it's not on, so is it just... No, the phantom power is on. Did you see the red light? Mm, 
Yeah. It has to be on or it won't work. So I know it's on. Hang on, I'll come down and just say. I apologize, everyone. This just doesn't look right in the board. So. Did you find the phantom power? It's the 48V, right? That's right. It's not on. Oh, let me see. Is it on channel 1 or channel 2? Are you selected 2? 2 is on. Okay, select channel 1. Will it do both? No, it won't. Select channel 1. That screen only shows you what you select. Okay, I got it. Thank you. You bet. So we're back in business. Sorry, slight educational moment. And I have a class for you to take, <laughs> as you know. And it came in the mail yesterday, and I said, oh, good, able to torment Terry with this. It'll be so much fun. Okay, let me just, and I can't simplify it. Again, it's it's uh, quantum mechanics. The Fontner of quantum physics, a fine structure constant, essentially says that 1, 137 is the odds that an electron will consume or will absorb a photon. That's what it's saying. And all I have to say that the fine structure constant, oops, no, controls how, did I turn this on or did you do? Uh oh. <laughs> oh no. Yes, click it one more time. <clears throat> okay, our backup recording wasn't activated, was it? Let me move this around. My goodness, are we struggling a little bit today. By we, I mean me. Okay. Uh, we'll get the audio off the video recording as well. Uh, okay, good. Anyway, the spine structure constant controls how strong chemical bonding is. How things, it, it's attached, how things stick together. You want to think of it that way at the atomic level or subatomic level. It's attached to the formation of matter. All matter. Theologically, I would say creation. Inside of creation is 137 to the negative 1. Or 137. And it's extraordinary. So what is a fine structure? What is a constant? Well, now you're, you're, you curious intrepid wanderer, you're welcome to the Rutherford Atomic structure model, which you all went through to see in school, except that later it was corrected by the Bohr model. So most of you would have seen, all of us would have seen the Bohr model of the atom. And you can remember, we have an atom with a nu- nu- nucleus, and I'll try to draw it, but I don't draw it very well, and you have electrons sweeping around it. If I only had one electron, of course, that would be a hydrogen atom. And atoms have all kinds of orbits going around them, and they have multiple electrons in them, and, and that tells you, its atomic structure tells you what that particular uh, atom is, uh, ultimately the molecule. So, the Bohr model of the atom, the electrons, the protons, the neutrons, the energy level, the electron shells, these, these levels, uh, the electron shells, the spectral emission, the higher energy states and the lower energy states, all of that is what's going on with the fine structure Constant. We have electrons orbiting the nucleus of an atom. This is a terrible diagram. We can't sell it. Mm-hmm. And everything, everybody, the electrons are happy, the, the protons are happy, the neutrons are happy. Everybody's happy. And orbiting is stable. But if an electron transmission or a transition occurs, in other words, if an electron decides to jump from this level to this level, and it jumps... If it does that inside that atom, uh, that's called spectral emission. If an electron leaves its assigned orbit, 
the shell, these are shells or level or energy levels, whatever you want to call them, that's what they're referred to. If the electron leaves its assigned energy level and moves to a different orbital energy level, this transition always causes the emission of a photon. Call that a photon. It emits light. Boom. Every time it jumps, a light comes out. If you want to think of it that way. And again, electrons now, therefore, and protons are connected with photons. So electrons and photons are connected. And I know what you're thinking. How does the fine structure constant number 137 have anything to do with the immortality of animals? Well, I wouldn't have brought it up if it didn't. Somehow this is going to get us to the immortality of animals. Why should the church know about this? That's what everybody's... everybody's we got one guy left listening somewhere. In Florida, I bet. Hi, Chad. But uh, everybody else is just gone. But the church, church should know this. Again, I started out by saying the physics community can't explain it and they say God is responsible for it. We should, as the church, know that. The obvious answer is obvious. The number 137 combines the speed of light, the, electri- the electrical charge of an electron, and Planck's constant. And some people say permittivity. Uh, that's capacitance, electrolytic capacitance in my field. When I, when I was with the, in the electrical field, uh, I dealt a great deal with electrolytic capacitors. Uh, but permittivity of space, you'll see that also. But basically, it's those three things. That's what the fine structure constant is concerned about. Energy of electrons, Planck's constant, and the speed of light. And it's combining them, which is extraordinary in the physics community. A fine structure constant is a dimensionless quantity as opposed to an associative quantity. Now That means nothing to you today, but it will eventually. It's dimensionless. It has no dimension. If it's dimensionless, what does that mean? If I told you, for example, this has spatial extendedness, you can see this cup. Oops, I got to get over here where the mic is. You can see this glass of water. You can tell me where it is located, right? You can tell me how big it is. You know how much it weighs. What its volume is. It has spatial extendedness. One thirty-seven does not have spatial extendedness. It is dimensionless. If it is dimensionless, what is it? It's not physical. If it's not physical, what is it? It's spiritual. That's where the church should know. And physicists, this is hilarious to me, not to the physicists. They decided to come up with a name for the 137, or the 137th. They decided we need a name. They call it Alpha, uh-huh. which of course is hilarious. They also said that it's the beginning. So, my goodness, this is the Alpha. So you're going to see this. Of all the things they could have called it, without reading Revelation 1.8 and 1.17, they decided to call it Alpha, which I think is just not coincidental. They know the 137th is, but they don't know why or how or what. And somebody said it's who. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, I am the 137. The 137. If you want to think of it that way. Richard Feynman, a noted physicist, uh, uh, an interesting man. He died, I think, in the 1980s. Uh, 
Uh, and he said, said, and I'm going to quote him here. Uh, he said, There is a most profound and beautiful question associated with the observed coupling constant, i.e. the amplitude for a real electron to emit or absorb a real photon. It is a simple number that has been experimentally determined to be close to 0.08542455. My physicist friends won't recognize this number because they like to remember it as the inverse of its square about 137.03597. It has been a mystery ever since it was discovered about 50 years ago. That's about, oh, that, he died in, in probably 1990, 1985, 1990. So you can do the math yourself. And all good theoretical physicists put this number up on their wall and worry about it. <laughs> Immediately, you would like to know where this number uh, for a coupling comes from. Is it related to pi, the ratio circumference diameter, or the base of a natural logarithm system? Nobody knows. It is one of the greatest mysteries of physics, a magic number that comes to us with no understanding by humans. We know the number. We don't understand it. You might say that the hand of God wrote that number, and we don't know how he pushed the pencil. Okay. Max Born said, if the value of the fine structure constant was different in any very small percentages, the universe would disintegrate. It, there's something called Pythagorean primes that we'll have to get into here. Uh, 137 is a Pythagorean prime number. It makes it incredibly interesting. Uh, the, val the value of the fine structure constant, again, they, they say it's magical. Atomic physics uh, relies on the fine structure constant. There is no theory that explains why the fine structure constant has the value that it has, except one theory, my theory, okay, the theological theory. The reason it has, look at its number. I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I get excited when I see these kinds of things. It's one, three, Seven. Of all the numbers, it's one three seven. The most biblical of all numbers, one three seven. I am the Alpha. It's just amazing to me. We always, I always asked when I was a young man, would people really put six 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 on them? Would they actually take a mark after reading Revelation? Who would do that? Would they get rid of paper money, of physical money? Control all the buying and selling. Is that even? I mean, how do you walk in? That seems it's not going to happen. Six 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 isn't going to happen. It is going to happen. I'll tell you. I know it's going to happen because one three seven has happened. I know. I, I can hear everybody screaming. Make him stop. <laughs> and I could continue with this great mystery for months, and I probably will. Sorry, not really, but sorry. <laughs> The fine structure constant is critical. Matter could not be stable if it wasn't exactly 1137. Life could not have come to be. Man exists. Mankind, animals require the fine structure constant to be 1137. 137. I can't repeat that enough. Let's just talk about 137 for a second. The beginning, Genesis 1 1, the Shema. 
the Lord your God, O Israel, is one God. The Elohim is in Genesis 1.1, the first sentence of the Bible. Genesis 1.26, the the us is what? Is the three. I have the one, the beginning. I have the one God, the Shema. I have the Elohim, the three. The perfect is the seven. Genesis 1.31, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 10.14. So you've got Deuteronomy 6.4, Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22, Genesis 1.31, the very good, the perfect. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 1.3, and Hebrews 10.14. Just to name a few of them. 1.3.7. The one God that is three, that is perfect. That happens to be the most important number in atomic physics. That is what holds Everything together in the universe. Inorganic and organic. Everything is held together by this coupling constant. I can't repeat it enough. One is the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 One is the beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1 Three is the triunity of God. God is three that are one. The Elohim, the us. The one one of Genesis one twenty six three twenty two seven again is the perfect Christ is perfect sinless righteous one three seven. But what's more interesting to me, I know that that's when I when I saw that many many years ago, I was fantastically interested in it. But uh, Genesis one four is amazing, as you know. In Genesis 1-4, God divided the light from the darkness. Think about that. That's the separation of light from darkness. That's a critical truth in Scripture. Uh, Particle light is separated from darkness. What's the process? Photons are absorbed by electrons. Emitted by electrons. So I have the emission of photons at 1-4 of Genesis. Atomic physics is displayed because of the fine structure constant. When he divided the light from the darkness, he displayed 1-3-7. The fine structure constant controls how we see light. We can't see light without the fine structure constant. So, once again, it just shows up so many places and it's so powerful. Sir Arthur Eddington, I I just adored Arthur Eddington. He was the first one to identify nuclear fusion. uh, Hydrogen atoms fusing into helium atoms as the root of stellar energy. In other words, he looked at stars and he said, what's happening? He looked at the sun. What's happening here? This is a thermonuclear device. This is nuclear fusion. He was right about that. So his, the luminosity, the light, exp- the explosion of light from a star, Edding, Eddington researched that. And he was also a philosopher, ultimately a theologian in my view, which led him to investigate the fine structure constant. Of course he would. He's de- dealing with light. And Eddington believed the number was precise. He believed it was exactly 137, 137. Physicists have since decided that he was incorrect. A negative 1, they said, 
you're going to have to learn all this. A negative 1 equals 137, and then point, 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 point. I don't want to write it down, but I'll give it to you. 137.0359990084. And so that's what they said it is. And, and that could be out of date, that number. Uh, that's I got that out of an old book that I had. I'm not sure what they might decide. It's changed all the time. They, they have decided that sometimes the fine structure constant is not constant. It depends on all kinds of different considerations. But I believe that Eddington was correct that it is absolutely precisely 137. So what accounts for uh, the point uh, 0359990084? Well, to me, to me, that's obvious. I side with Eddington that it is a precise, perfect, exact number. I submit that Genesis 1.1.131, the number was perfectly 137. At Genesis 3.4.3.7, something changed. And it became 137.035.99984. Because of what? Entropy. The curse. That's what caused the deviation. It wasn't that much of a deviation. I mean, it's very small, really, ultimately. So everything still couples, everything still works. But it's flawed. And I think, again, Genesis 3, 4 through 7. Eddington, as were many physicists then and today, uh, sought the unification of quantum physics, Einstein's relativity and gravity and cosmological phenomena. Everybody's still trying to do that. And Eddington predicted the number of hydrogen atoms in the universe. In other words, he, he said that he... There's this many hydrogen atoms in the universe. Now, this is somebody who was, again, uh, he believed that protons and electrons were the fundamental particles that formed the universe. And that's amazing. He's saying that what? Light formed the universe. Well, of course, of course he's... Again, that's a theological position. He wrote this, The stuff of the world is mind stuff. Not physical. He looked at 137 and said, this is, not a, this is not a physical system. This is a theological system. And that's similar to Max Planck's. Max Planck, and I, and I cut it down a little bit for the sake of time. I regard the fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get away from consciousness. Everything that we regard as existing postulates consciousness. And I've quoted that before. But you can see how he and Eddington had the same conclusion. Planck also said science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature because in the final analysis, we ourselves are part of that mystery we are trying to solve. We're inside. We can't see the forest for the trees. There's no way we'll solve it. It has to be outside of us to be solved. 137. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 137. The fine structure constant cannot be solved other than consciousness. 137 is intelligence on display for us. That's the number of God. I know, I went way longer than I wanted to go. I've got to really hurry. Final thought? No, not really. Today on the fine structure constant, though I wanted to address the anthropic principles. You have the weak anthropic principle and the strong anthropic principle. And anthropic anthropic arguments are used to confront consciousness and the fine-tuning of the universe. I bring that up because you need to know if you're going to start studying these kinds of things, you need to know what the atheistic response is, what the monistic, uh, the evolutionary response is, the people who believe there is no existence. Atheistic precepts, it's good to know them, and that's where the anthropic principle comes into play, so eventually we'll have to do that. Okay, anyway, the fine structure constant and hydrogen spectral lines. And I don't have a hydrogen atom up here, so 
but you kind of get the drift, I hope. It was determined that the Bohr model of the atom should include spectral lines. He did not have spectral lines. So what are spectral lines? Hydrogen, for example, has one level, one shell with one orbiting electron. So I could draw that again, but no time. But the one level line isn't just one line. It has thinner lines in it. So in other words, the lines, it has, it has fine lines inside what we think is a line. How's that? And so, um, the lines are actually a collection of close, fine lines. So the, this line, this level, this shell is actually a bunch of little lines. Very close, fine lines. So that is where the fine structure constant comes from. The fine line structures, if you want to think of them that way, the fine line structures result when the electrons jump from one energy level to another. And they're called spectral lines. So that's, again, fine fine structure constant. Anyway, we're going to get back to the immortality of animals as fast as we can. There's certain resurrection from physical death. That's what I'm trying to say. It's certain. It's precise. It is exact. We can count on it. It's absolutely true. And we need to con- conclude Ecclesiastes 3.22 to get that all done. Since 3.22 of Ecclesiastes... Did I say Ecclesiastes? <laughs> Gosh, I've got to go faster. So Ecclesiastes is, is my way of saying Ecclesiastes now. Mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes 12... Uh, 13 and 14, in Ecclesiastes 3.22, they're all put together. Solomon wrote it all. He knew when he wrote three of Ecclesiastes that he was going to conclude it in 12 of Ecclesiastes when he completed his thought process. Uh, That is a Holy Spirit-inspired event as well. But uh, Ecclesiastes 3.22 is the solution to Ecclesiastes 3.21, which very few people ever realize. And so also is Ecclesiastes 12.13 through 14, the conclusion of the whole matter, as Solomon puts it as his final words. Ecclesiastes 3.22 has symmetry with Ecclesiastes 12.13 and 14. How's that? How's that? Summon that up. I can send that really quickly. Uh, and we're going to read really fast 3.21 and 3.22. I think we've read it before, but I need to pound it in. If you look at my Ecclesiastes 3.18... You see what I've had to write here. And I moved it all over here to number four, and that's what I have to do. If you look at this piece of paper I have, I've written everywhere, all over it, trying to make sure I didn't leave anything up. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of Adam. Notice how I say the sons of Adam instead of the sons of men, because Adam and men are interchangeable, and it really makes more powerful, in my opinion, when you see Adam instead of men. I've corrected it in my text. I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the sons of Adam. God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Okay, that's how it starts. Now, he he goes after all of that. He says, who knows... The breath of the sons of Adam, which goes upwards, and the breath of the animal, which goes down to the earth. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Okay? So I gave you 3.18, and then I jumped to 3.21 and 3.22. You should immediately begin asking question. Who knows? Who knows, he said, seems to imply that what? No one knows, not even Solomon. So who does know? Does anyone know? Does the angels know? 
they would eventually know maybe they are the, the Genesis 28:12 agents. They transport the spirit, Ecclesiastes 12:7. We might then conclude that the angels sometime they eventually have to know because they're the ones actually taking that spirit back to the one who gave it. They're the messengers. But exactly what is it that no one knows? If no one knows, the angels don't know. Who knows? There's only one person that can know. The 137. God knows. Only God knows. God must therefore communicate what he knows. The word for spirit here, some verses are going to say, uh, all go to one place. We are all from dust and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of, of Adam, which goes upwards, and the spirit of the animal? That's the ruach again. So that's the breath, the breath of the spirit of life. Who knows if the breath of the sons of Adam go upwards? Only God knows. What does that mean? And wait a minute, what about Ecclesiastes 12.7? Let's fire at that really fast. I should have this all with little tabs on it so I can go faster. Here we go. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the breath will return to God who gave it. Okay? Ecclesiastes 12.7. This seems to say that mankind ascends the breath of man, but I've made a presupposition there, or a supposition there, that isn't true. I've slipped it in, and it's a trick. So don't fall for it. This seems to say that mankind ascends the breath of man. The sons of Adams will go up to God. Ecclesiastes 3.21 then would contradict that, because no one can know that. But 12.7, it seems like Solomon knows. If that's your view of what is being said in 3.21. What I'm trying to say is that if you look at 12.7 and you see that the spirits go up to God, then that contradicts 3.21. So that cannot be the case. Obviously, return to God and go upward do not mean the same thing. Which brings into the question of what goes down. What does goes down mean? What does he mean by this? It's ascending and descending. That's Genesis 28.12, Proverbs 34, and John 3.13. It's a great mystery. Nicodemus didn't have any idea what was going on there. and He was the teacher of all of Israel. We should know what Solomon is trying to say. The Holy Spirit. What, the, what they mean here. All Ruach, Nefesh, Shayah returned to him that gave it. No doubt about that. 12.7. All men are resurrected, but not all men are saved. Some ascend, if you want to think of it that way, to, to heaven to life. We think of heaven and ascending up to heaven. That's because Christ did that. He says he's the one that does that. Some, we assume, go down to torment, to death. They descend to the second death. Ascend and descend imply location. Is that what Solomon is saying here? Is he implying location of the body and the spirit? All animals are resurrected. I'm going to say that again. All animals are resurrected to life. And hopefully I've established that to a certainty. And there's more of that to come even so. In my opinion... One of the New Testament complements or correlations to Ecclesiastes 3.21 is Matthew 13.24-30 and 13.38-43. So now let's go read that. I think 
they fit here. And of course, I would be what? That's right. 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 I would be right. Of course I would. Now people will fight me and they'll say, what an arrogant piece of crud he is. And go ahead. You can fight me. I don't care if you don't believe me. But just in case, let's read this. 13, 24 through 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The king of heaven is like a man who sowed seed. Good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. That's what he says. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers. Genesis 28, 12. First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So that's his parable. 1343. Thir- I'm sorry, 38 through 43. The field is the world, he says. The good seeds are the son of, God, of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus Christ, he's the Alpha. He's the one, three, seven, is speaking to a great multitude. He gives them the parable of the sower who's sowing seeds and those who receive the seeds. uh, And some do not receive the seed. They reject the seed. The receivers of the salvation are categorized, as you mostly know. The joyful stone wayside ones who cannot produce fruit. They are on a stone path. They receive it with joy, but they get blown up. They can't handle it. They have no root system. They have no depth of understanding. They don't know anything about Christ. And you see that in the church today. It is the dominant system. We have people who receive the the seed with joy, but they are blown away because they have no depth of understanding. The thorn receivers, likewise, they're choked because, and and Christ goes on to explain, they're they're choked by the world. They love the world more than anything. So they're choked. And then there are the good soil receivers. They are the crop producers. They understand the Word, which means they understand Christ, John 1. They know Him. And I realize everybody that's listening probably knows all of this, and that's wonderful. But uh, and, and Christ Himself explains it Matthew thirteen eighteen through twenty three, twenty three. Huh. But many do not understand that He places the wheat and the tares after the sower. They separate the sower and they separate the wheat, or the wheat and the tares, and he, that's not what you're supposed to do. They're absolutely connected. They add information to each other. They interchange. For today, the focus is on the harvesting process. Who is given this responsibility? It isn't the servants. They are prohibited from harvesting because they cannot differentiate the wheat from the tares. They don't know a wheat and they don't know a tare. 
Now go back to 321 of Ecclesiastes. Who knows the difference between man and an animal? They don't know if the breath of man should go upward or downward, these servants. The angels have given this assignment. They are the ones who ascend and descend on the ladder. Genesis 28.12 To repeat the questions, Ecclesiastes 3.21 Who knows the spirit? And I'm going to give it to you from the Targum or the Septuagint, even the Vulgate. Who, who has seen whether the breath goes of men goes upward and whether the breath of animals goes downward. Who has seen that? That's what he asked. Remember Anna's question? The unnamed Anna? Why can't we see the spirit? Who has seen the spirit of an animal go upward or downward? Who has seen the spirit of a man go upward or downward? No one has seen it. Only God sees it. Only God knows it. He has to give that assignment to the angels. Who can prove it? No one has seen it. Who can say it? That's ultimately what Solomon does. Who can say they know it? No one can say they know it. Only God can say. Does God say? Yes, he does. He tells you whether or not the the spirit of animal goes upward or downward. He makes it very, very clear. The implication uh, is that many derive from that is some will go up and some will go down and you know, nobody knows, and you know, no one can prove it. No one can see it. The Hebrew is very difficult to interpret because it is, it is a limited. Uh, the words are have many meanings, not unlike our language. Our language is very difficult too, but the Hebrew is also like that. It's it's imprecise. I'm sorry, the translation of it is imprecise. You can't really know what was here. You have to. Hope that you know in some sense. And I submit that the traditional translations are contradictory to the preceding verse of Ecclesiastes uh, 3.20. In other words, 3.21, those translations, can't the, the traditional ones, can't be right. Because uh, 3.20 makes it clear, all go to one place. Animals and man. All go to one place. All go to the same place. Man and animal. And then there's that wonderful word. Wonderful word that, I, that is absolutely critical. Here's what he says. Surely they all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. That's the key word there. What does vanity mean? Remember, there's three meanings of vanity. There's this vaporous, vanity is a vapor, like we have a fleetingness to us. We're, we're, a, we're a vapor that has very short period of time on this earth. The other one, of course, is futile. It's all futile. But the third one is the one that he means here. It makes it obvious when you read the text. The third one, and that's the only way you can translate it correctly. The third one is, and again, is to know the text because the Hebrew is difficult to, to turn into English or Latin. But the third one is incomprehensible. Great mystery. Surely they all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over, no transitory advantage over animals, for all is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. Obviously, this is the physical body only that goes to dust. Physical body of man, physical body of animal. That is clear. That's known. 
It's the body that returns to dust. All, both man and animal, have the same breath. The one breath. The one breath. The one three seven. They all have that. The breath of God, Ecclesiastes three nineteen. This is this is also known. Surely they all have the same breath, he said. Surely you know that animals and humanity have the one breath. How many breaths are there? There's one. What are you going to read so many times? Oh, animals have a different breath than humanity. It's not the same. There's one breath. There's not one and a half breaths. It's not two, three, seven. It's not 1.537. It's one, three, seven. One breath. Surely. Don't call me Shirley. Mm -hmm. Shirley knows that they all have the same breath. But something is an unknown. Something is a great mystery. The great mystery is confirmed by who knows? Nobody knows. Nobody can prove it. Nobody's seen it. Only God knows. Only God can say it. Think about the, when Solomon wrote this. Did he write it before the book of Revelation? Okay, nobody knows at the time of Solomon. And there's a reason that God puts this in here. He wants to know, did you figure it out? This is the test, right? Did you figure this out? So the great mystery is, the fact that it's a great mystery, that's the proper translation of vanity here, is confirmed by who knows, who has seen, who can prove it, who can say. Vanity is best understood in Ecclesiastes 3.19 to represent a great mystery which confirms, which I'm sorry, conforms to the test. The test is a test because it's a great mystery. So all of that fits together. The context cleans it all up. Can we see, can we understand that what happens to the sons of Adam happens to the same, I'm sorry, happens the same to the animals. All go to one place and all return to the dust. All go to one place. That's what it says, doesn't it? They go to one place. All go to one place and all and all return to dust. What have I got there in that sentence? I got one place and I got dust. Obvious question. All go to one place. What's the one place that all go to? Is the, is the one place the same place as the dust place? It's obviously not. All return to dust. Genesis 3.19 is that, right? We are two substances. Dual substances. Duality. The body and the breath of God. Genesis 2.7. The animals are also two substances. Substance duality. We separate at death. The breath of the spirit of life leaves the body and goes where? What does he say? To the one place. And the body goes to dust from which it came. The spirit also came from somewhere. I'm saying that the spirit came from the one place in a sense. But it actually comes from someone. It comes from the one. Can't beat on the, uh, on the blackboard enough. The Lord God of creation. And it returns to him, the spirit does, the breath. His breath comes back to him. Ecclesiastes 12.7. I say that so many times. Can't say it enough. A beautiful song that guy wrote on that. And, and astonishing. And the guy that did it, that performed it, was equally incredible. Is that still up on the website somewhere, I hope? Yeah, just... Um, <laughs> go to the uh, cliffside.org slash um, 
media page is right on top, right there. Yeah, there's an exhortation in, in um, Ecclesiastes 12 to remember God. What's the impl- implication? As you're dying, remember Him. He says. What's, what's the implication? Is that people don't remember Him all the way until they're ready to die? Death has a way of focusing our memory, and it's a wonderful salvation technique. It really is. He says that the death is for your sake, and you can expound on that. It's a fantastic verse there. But I'm I'm submitting that Solomon is referring to the process. The soul, spirit, mind of the living being goes to one place, and the body goes to the dust place. And of course, you have Sheol, Sheol, which is Hebrew, and Hades, which is Greek. The saved went to paradise, or Abraham's bosom, Christ calls it, right? The unsaved went to torment, and it's a great gulf fixed, Luke 16:26. It's a great gulf between them, and it's fixed. It cannot, they can't jump levels. Mm-hmm. If they're electrons, they can't, there's no spectral emission. There's no fine lines. You can't get from one to the other. It is a permanent condition. And at the time of Solomon, this was the situation. Abraham's bosom and torments. And that was changed when? It's crucifixion. Christ went to paradise, Luke 23, 43. At his resurrection, he emptied paradise and took all of those who were waiting for him, Psalm 104, 27 through 31. All of those who have died, and they're waiting for him, from Adam until Christ, uh, the first Adam to the, last, to the second Adam, so that period of time, 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 49, and, and really quickly, Psalm 104, 27, 31, specifically refers to animals. The animal kingdom waits to be resurrected. Psalm 104, 24, they're waiting. Where are they waiting? They have to have a waiting place. Where are they? 104, 30. The earth is full of God's possession, Psalm 65, 13. The sheep cover his valley like a blanket. There's so many lambs, so many sheep. Again, Psalm 65, 13. Cover it. They are his possessions. Genesis 14, 22. As are we. He's the possessor of all things. And the sheep are, and the lambs, what are they doing? They're singing for joy. Singing with joy and for joy. Animals are described in scripture. Revelation 5, 11, 5, 14 being the, being the most known verses. They're, they're portrayed. They're told, we are told that they are shouting and singing with praise and joy. Revelation 5.11. Let me read that. How am I doing? Wow. Got to go. Got to go. Okay. Let's just go 13 really fast. And every creature, kisma, K-T-I-S-M-A, which, which means created creature. Every kisma, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that all and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures verse 14. The living creatures the word there is zoom or zoa. Zoom. Sometimes you'll see the same word translated. Zoa. But for today, every creature, every creature that is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea, what did they do? 
They spoke. What's that? That's Balaam's... That's the 22-28. They're in heaven. They're singing and shouting with joy in the throne room of heaven. The Greek word for living creatures, again, is zoom. Out of that, we got what? In the English language, zoology. What is zoology? The study of behavior, structures, physiology, classification, and distribution of what? Animals. The, in the, and note the order in 511. It's amazing. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Now listen, this is Revelation 5. What happened in Revelation 4? Think about that while I read this. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures. Zoon. It's animals. And the elders. Many angels, the living creatures, and the elders. Think about that. Note the order. What have I got there? I got what? I got three what? Kingdoms. And how perfect is that order? What comes first? The angelic kingdom. What comes second in Genesis? The animal kingdom. And then who comes? The human kingdom. The number of these beings in heaven in Revelation 5.11 is uncountable. It is beyond calculation. The number of this multitude is not knowable. You can't know the number. Who knows the number? Nobody can know the number. It's unknowable. It's not knowable to man or angel. It is an enormous number. And they all shout and sing in a loud voice. They are shouting and singing with joy. Think about that. They have joy. Why do they have joy? Because they're in heaven. And who is singing and shouting? Animals, angels, animals, and human. They speak. Their mouths are open. Every creature of God is good, it says in, in uh, 5.13 and 14. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, same word. Every creature of God is good. So combine 1 Timothy 4.4 4 with Revelation 5.13. Does it make any sense to anyone that animals in the throne room of heaven would be singing and shouting with joy and praise if they were ex- extinguished and annihilated? What is wrong with you people? Go back and figure out what you got wrong at at Ecclesiastes 3.21. You can't be right. And during this series, The Immortality of Animals, I've been trying to bury you with the scriptural evidences of the resurrection of animals. And hopefully, I've I've done some of that. I've demonstrated that the Bible is openly screaming at us that God will save his animals. Why? Because he loves them. Psalm 36. He delights in them. And it's justice. It's loving kindness. It's mercy. But it's also justice. And he is good. And he is just. And again, the Bible records a deluge of evidences, of proofs. Yet the atheistic evolutionary philosophy has triumphed in the church today. And it's a great failure. It's created a mess. And and, and never, let me say it this way, never allow a difficulty with one verse. Uh, And again, the difficulty is not with the Bible. The Bible is perfect in its original form, but we don't have the original form. But uh, don't allow a difficulty with one verse. And what I would say is likely an error in interpretation, a transcription error, or a translation error, or all three. Human failure, uh, it's always human failure. It's never a contradiction. 
Because we don't fully understand what Solomon, and I'm hoping to fix that, what the Holy Spirit said in Ecclesiastes uh, 3.21, don't cast aside the, the overwhelming flood of passages which definitely testify of the immortality of animals. Or that for that matter, the truth of, of Christ, the, his infinity, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omnibenevolence. He's never not God. Our thoughts otherwise will never be considered. Again, Christ says, behold, I make things, all things new. Christ lists those who will not be in the New Jerusalem. What, what does that tell us? All we got to do is look at the list. These are those who will not be in the New Jerusalem. And they are unbelievers, willful unbelievers, 21.8, 21.5. There are no animals in the lake of fire. He makes all things new. Okay, really fast. I didn't make it. I'm probably way out of time, aren't I, Kate? Have I gone? Okay, I've got to, I've got to read 3.22. So I perceive that nothing is better. This is the solution to 3.18 through 3.21. So here's the solution. And I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Hey, Ecclesiastes 3.22, again, wraps up 3.18 through 21, something I've mentioned, I hope, something else I hope I've said during all of this Ecclesiastes 3 um, stuff is that Ecclesiastes 3 and Ecclesiastes 12 are interlocked. And Ecclesiastes 12 is amazing. It really helps you explain it. I can't get it to, to you today. We don't have time. I'll just say that he says, uh, can I do it really quick? He says, uh, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That, that's the solution right there. Let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Believe God. Fear could, is, has a belief element to it. Believe God and keep his commandments, for this is all that man can do. So nothing is better than man should rejoice in his own works. What's that mean? For that's his heritage. What's that mean? Can you imagine what really lousy expositors have said about this verse? How does this explain 321? What about Ecclesiastes 4? That's really fantastic. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are, sti who are still alive, yet better that both he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work, better than both is he who has never existed who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Do you realize what they do with that verse? They say, oh, see, there's annihilationism. And you should work. You should work your way to heaven. That's what they do. I wish I wasn't, I was, I was kidding, but I'm not. 4.3 uh, is like 3.21. It's consistently butchered by commentators. But I hope you know instinctively if I've done anything. You know that something is askew in that translation. I read you the uh, New King James. Something's wrong with it. Never existed is literally ha, ha. I can barely it. Heya. It means came. They, they, they said existed. Had become. Never there. Where it says, uh, where is it Never. Can't find it. Who has never seen? Okay, it's not seen. Never is, is shall not. He who has never existed, the he is in italics. It's not in the text. 
better than both that shall not come, which has not seen evil. That's what it says. And, and I think that it is obviously Psalm 10 talking about infants and Job stillborn. Heritage at 322 is legacy. So he's saying legacy. Better that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his legacy. So now I know what his legacy is. What does legacy mean? Children. He, a man should rejoice in his saved, believing children. Believe God. That is all. That explains 321. Do you believe that God says about his possession and his animals? Or do you, are you repeating the error at Exodus 17, 1 through 7? In other words, do you believe God when he says the animals are going to, you can't count them, there's so many of them. There's so many animals, there's not possible for you to count them. I'm the only one that can count them. Angels can't count them. You and man, man and angels can spend an eternity trying to count them, they still can't get them. They're not infinite. But they're uncountable. There's a difference. Are you, do you believe what God says about his possessions, the animals? Are, are you repeating the error at Exodus 17, 1 through 7? That is where Israel accused God of murdering children and animals. Exodus 17, 3. Yemekna, livestock, possessions. Israel said, did you bring us out here to kill us, kill our children, and kill our possessions, our animals. They think that they own those things. That's where you've gone awry. The children are mine, says the Lord Jesus, Matthew nineteen fourteen. Let them come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those that come to me. Such as these. Innocent children come to me. Who else is innocent? Animals. What do they do? They come to Him. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as thee. What did He mean, such as these? Who's included in the ones that come to Him? Now, again, hopefully there are believers that do that. But that, all of that implies you understand immediately that that would include the animal kingdom. He includes the animal kingdom, Revelation 5. He has made the new city of Jerusalem for his possessions that come to him. Especially such as children and animals who will always come to him. Matthew 19.14 and Mark 1.13 Okay. Shut her down. Thank you for listening to Cliffside Community Chapel's lecture by Pastor Stephen A. Chronister. This broadcast is available each Saturday at 0600 hours Coordinated Universal Time on 4840 kilohertz in the 60 meter band. For more information about Cliffside Community Chapel and for links to this podcast, please visit our website at cliffside.org.